This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io, Quantstamp, and EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, you're Sheila Warren. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. If you spend any time whatsoever in the cryptoverse, you'll soon realize that securities law is a hot topic. Whether it's expounding on the merits or limitations of the so-called Howey test, debating to death whether this or that token is or isn't a security, or whether we're actually creating a world in which the very concept of security is on its way to being outdated, Crypto enthusiasts have a lot to nerd out on in this space, and not just those of us who are, or were, practicing attorneys. It doesn't hurt that the highly visible chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, certainly seems to encourage this focus, whether calling publicly for greater collaboration from watchdogs on crypto oversight, or, as some argue, paving a path to regulation via active enforcement. Now, as it turns out, our current securities laws largely date back to the 1930s, which is also when the SEC was created. These laws resulted from a series of hearings that brought to light the severity of the abuses that led to the Great Depression. Things like corporate officers and family members profiting from trading in their own company stock or tax avoidance schemes. In probably my favorite example, New York Congressman LaGuardia, yes, like the airport, dramatically appeared as a surprise witness with evidence that a PR person had paid off reporters of major newspapers to ensure that overly favorable hyped news stories about specific companies were published for the purpose of increasing the stock price of those companies. So it's no wonder that the key theme of the first federal securities laws in the U.S. was disclosure and keeping an eye on insiders. But are those laws, which really haven't changed much in 90 years, appropriate in 2022? And most importantly, do they fit with the crypto industry? Setting aside the contentious debates over whether this or that token should be regarded as a security, the existing disclosure rules seem wildly out of place. The details that are disclosed often don't address all the things an investor needs to know to invest intelligently in a crypto project. Securities disclosures now often result in massive tomes of information that nobody would read unless paid to do so or perhaps to combat terrible insomnia. And that sort of thing isn't really helpful in a world that contains things like DeFi. So what would be helpful? Our guests today will help us baseline our understanding of securities laws and then talk with us about where they fall short. He'll share his ideas for a new disclosure framework for crypto markets that would achieve key policy goals like protecting against fraud, maintaining level playing fields, and promoting consumer education without putting too great a burden on innovation. That guest is our friend Christopher Brummer, the Agnes N. Williams Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center and author of a white paper in the Stanford Journal of Blockchain Law and Policy called Disclosure, DApps, and DeFi. Before we bring in Chris, let's talk to my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hi there, Sheila. I mean, I can't believe Stanford Law has a journal on blockchain law and policy. I remember the Journal of Law and Technology back in my day being like such a big deal, right? There's enough in technology law to have a whole journal, and now we've got one on blockchain law, how far we've come. Yeah. Once you put the word the journal of in front of a title, it gives it all this importance, right? And then Stanford, Stanford Journal of, it's like, wow, we've made it, guys. This is the big league sort of stuff. But we joke a little bit about this because of all the lawyers that we 
have on this show and the lawyers versus the journalists. But, you know, I think that law and blockchain is just a fascinating area, right? Because it, it immediately challenges a lot of those preconceptions. And, and that's why I'm really looking forward to Chris, because, you know, the way he's trying to think through how do we take those old SEC structures, give it something modern and apply it to a more dynamic world of block is what's interesting. It's like, I have a friend from MIT, Daza Greenwood, who talks about hacking the law. It sounds really devious, but in fact, it's really just about how do you like be creative around some of these legal structures and build things. So, you know, it's going to be good to chat to him. The running joke, you know, is that that policy is so far behind innovation that by the time you get any policy, you're just a generation back, right? So you're always chasing. But the law can, in theory, move a little faster in some cases, even than formal policy. And here, I think we have an obligation to be really thoughtful, as we talk about on the show so much. This innovation is pretty much proven. It's here to stay. So how do we reckon with it? How do we reconcile it? So hardly anyone better to talk about this than Chris Brummer. So let's go ahead and bring him in. Hey, Chris. Hey, Thanks for joining how's it us. Going? Great to see you. You know, so so unlike uh, the nerds on this show, and I'm pulling all three of us here at Michael, I'm going to make an honorary member of the bar for this conversation. A lot of our, <laughs> our listeners and viewers really are just like, what securities? What? I think I know what that is. That's what I kind of invest in stuff. Can you just baseline for us, like maybe talk us through like the Howey test at kind of a high level? Just let's just get everybody kind of on the same page here about how do we define currently what is a security? So, so as a law professor, I have to say this is probably the first time I've ever been asked to voluntarily walk people through the Howey <laughs> test. So just as a kind of a running start, because usually, I mean, in, in, a, in my class and most classes for securities law across the country, you spend literally three or four weeks grappling with, you know, what is a security? You know, security. And it has to do with the fact that in the United States, what's defined as a security is basically the product of a Supreme Court decision called SEC versus Howey. And it's not like a bright line rule saying if you have X, Y and Z, that's a security. Instead, it's a test. It's a multi factor or multi pronged analysis that you have to undertake. And if you undertake that analysis and if each prong is satisfied, then voila, you know, you have a security. And effectively, the Howey test says, you know, wherever you have an investment of money, so that's one prong, you have to have an investment of money in something called a common enterprise, and whether or not, so as a sort of second prong, a third prong is that those investors who are pursuing profit, so pursuit of profits being a third prong, and who are dependent on the efforts of others. So the canonical way of saying it is uh, a security arises wherever there's an investment of money in a common enterprise, you know, where again, you have investors who in their pursuit of profits are dependent on the efforts of others. Now, each one of those prongs is a very sort of situational test. In other words, you always have to depend on the facts and circumstances relating to any kind of offering of an investment. And the challenge under U.S. law is that because each is contextual, a judge in any particular case can kind of come out with a different judgment or understanding as to whether or not that particular prong has been satisfied. But that's a, a sort of inherent a feature, some would say a bug, of how you understand what a security is. Now, blockchain technology sort of complicates that even more, especially when you Talk about things like, you know, being dependent on the efforts of others. You know, what does that mean in a decentralized <laughs> environment? Much less, what does that mean when you move to something like DeFi, where you have automated computer programs, protocols, smart contracts? Under what circumstance is a person, an investor, depending on the efforts of others? And then when you get to specific products, 
the issue becomes even more complicated. So if there being a pursuit of profits is an essential element to a security, what does that mean for stable coins? You know, which are by definition, at least, uh, you know, CEO you know, intended to maintain a stable value. These kinds of questions pop up both due to the infrastructure and the architecture generated by blockchains. And then, and then also even the kinds of financial services and products raise very novel questions that, you know, security law, nerds, geeks, lawyers, SEC, and founders, you know, people are, are really trying to grapple. In this space, there is a huge debate, which we're not going to get into today, about is or is something, you know, in this space of security or not. But I think where we're going with our conversation today is really, even when something is a security, what are the rules the SEC has put into place, largely from the 30s, but to some extent have been beefed up over time? We can go into that if we feel like we want to go there. And the question there is, what was the goal? And the goal really was making sure that people who were outsiders to the system, so not the insiders you're talking about, those who are engaging in this activity, those, uh, those who are at the behest of the activities of others, right? What do they need to know to decide? Is this something I want to put my money into or not? Is it safe? Is it how risky is it? Whatever information I might need. That's really one of the main goals of our securities laws. And I think what's really interesting, Chris, about what you've kind of worked into is this idea that that is not really helping. It's not really helping us here. Yeah, you know, so just to take a sort of step back and you look at not just how securities laws were in the 1930s, but sort of how the architecture for securities law has evolved nowadays, right? When you look at what is securities law supposed to be uh, doing? Well, operationally, the idea behind the Howey test is once you have those four elements together, effectively, the state should sort of jump in. People are putting their savings at risk. They're putting their money into a common enterprise. And so, you know, there's like a game theoretic kind of model of, of a free rider problem, right? Where everyone can maybe look at a bunch of other investors and say, I don't really need to find the information because someone else is going to do it. But that, of course, rationally leads to nobody undertaking the effort to, to sort of get the information from an issuer. Whether or not you get into a speculative frenzy with your pursuit of profits, and then when you're dependent on others, you know, you have this asymmetry. It's kind of like when you go to the, you know, to get your car fixed, right? You know, when the auto mechanic comes to you and says, that'll be 300 bucks, and you're asking, Really? Is it? But you just don't really know, right? Because there's an information asymmetry. Howey test basically says when you have all that together, you have to deliver information in order to sort of deal with what the SEC, or excuse me, I should say the Supreme Court has said is a kind of, of, of a market failure. Now, the problem or the challenge is that as our securities laws have grown up over the last 70 plus, 80 plus years, really disclosure has evolved into a system where disclosure is really meant to be filed and not so much read, right? So in other words, if you're a public company and you're looking to do an IPO or something, when that company does an IPO, no one's really expecting the retail investor to read several hundred page prospectus that is itself filed in a database that the lawyers listening will know and love well called Edgar with the SEC. And, and really those disclosures are meant to be read by institutional investors, financial analysts, but not like the normal person. And it only becomes relevant to the normal person if something goes wrong. And after the fact, you look at the disclosures to see whether or not they measured up and whether or not there may have been fraud or some kind of misrepresentation in those disclosures. I think that when you get to something like DeFi, that particular model doesn't necessarily work that well if you're thinking about the end user of different kinds of protocols 
and smart contract, a normal person looking to navigate that space. It doesn't really empower them very much. So part of this project has been to really think about, well, okay, we know that there's a certain indeterminacy with securities law in terms of how it's applied. But even when you call something a security, it doesn't solve a lot of problems, or at least let's say there are a lot of problems that are still left outstanding. One is the one that you just mentioned, that even if you're called a security, the requirements of what has to be disclosed doesn't really map onto a blockchain. They ask you about corporate governance, where if you're, even if you're making an investment, you're really more interested in blockchain governance. They're asking about dilution with common equity, where really you, you may want to know more about how a governance token works. So even if you magically call something a security, it's not really like all of your problems kind of go away. So that's one problem. But then the, there's this problem that even if you had all that disclosure, there's no guarantee that someone's actually going to consume that disclosure. And so I kind of suggest that when we think about disclosure, let's do a couple of things. Let me think about securities law in general. Number one, let's not only ask a question about compliance, but let's ask the question about what is compliance? You know, what is disclosure in a world where already lots of information is frankly available on a blockchain, particularly on a public blockchain in the form of code, but the normal guy really can't access it because they may not have the sophistication, not financial sophistication, but the technological sophistication to be able to, you know, kick the tires on code and like, is there something within the technology that regulators and others can sort of think about, perhaps with even new use cases, where you imagine both the possibilities of that technology and also really start to think ambitiously about crypto-native solutions. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields up to 17% paid out daily? Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. Quantstamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for Quantstamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. That's quantstamp.com careers. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY Blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. Yeah, I like that framework. I think so often, except that these are the laws, this is the structure, and we have to comply with it. And there's too rarely are people thinking about, well, it's actually solved the problem for the user. But looking at that and the way you talked about the different ways in which potentially the technology could solve that problem for the user, 
Can you walk us through those examples that you've got there in your paper? You talk about disclosure NFTs, disclosure DAOs, and uh, digital identities. How about uh, NFTs, right? A hot topic, a unique property that has to it. How does that give you something additional as a disclosure facility for people to be able to rely on? Yeah. So, so again, like the idea that I'm trying to think about is like, how can you even, assuming you can come up with and sort of revamp whatever kinds of disclosures that you need, I kind of suggest instead of voluminous disclosures that are meant to be filed and not read, maybe a consumer protection model is better. So shorter, crisper, to the point disclosures that are actually meant to be consumed by this end user looking to navigate the space. But and even if you can sort of clean all that up, you should think about, well, how do I deliver that disclosure? What's the disclosure delivery system? And right now, as I said, in Edgar, you know, you kind of file it away in the SEC's database. That database has been hacked before. You don't even know if it's hacked. There are all kinds of different kinds of issues. There have been GAO reports about, you know, the Edgar system that ran that system and the need to upgrade it. But I was kind of think, well, okay, if you're going to think about the, this idea that public blockchains introduce just by their very nature, really the possibility of integrating into the disclosure system or really introducing disclosure systems into applications that are also native to the ecosystem where disclosure enhancements are sought. And I think that what you get to when you think about the blockchain ecosystem is the possibility of programmable disclosures. Disclosures where you're tokenizing not just disclosure, but really much more than that. You know, the, the possibility of being able to tokenize one's interaction and engagement with the disclosure and by extension, creating all kinds of new use cases that can be designed to enhance technological literacy and even other kinds of ideas like sophistication and the like. So I start off with NFTs because, hey, everybody likes NFTs, you know, uh, sports NFTs and the like. But what made NFTs really interesting for me was that you, you have this possibility of being able to represent information in ways that can either embed or be embedded in smart contracts, thus getting to this programmability proposition. And I started to think about what are the different ways in which an NFT could tokenize disclosures or even better tokenize the, the engagement with disclosure. And so I kind of run through the paper like different kinds of models. So, you know, the most intuitive model is just, well, maybe I can tokenize disclosures that are off-chain and use that NFT, since everyone loves NFTs, as a kind of delivery mechanism to an investor. And I said, well, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's cute, you know, but, but that may not be necessarily the most economic use case, uh, since you could always use email. And the gas fees associated with many public blockchains are so high that, you know, it's neat, but it may not necessarily sort of do the trick. So then I think, well, maybe then in order to justify the cost, assuming that there are no efficiency upgrades to public blockchains, which I expect, but maybe we should be even more ambitious and to think about, well, maybe I'm not, one should not necessarily think about tokenizing disclosure and putting it on a blockchain, but what if you could create uh, a website off-chain, uh, have someone engage with that disclosure, gamify that experience, either through a test or through a game of some sort, and if you pass a test or if you win the game, you then could receive a disclosure token put into the wallet of the person who passed the test. Well, that's a pretty interesting idea because now you're creating a credential of not only having received the disclosure, but also having engaged with it. So you're telling me 
a little bit mm. more about not just the issuer, but also the investor. And that's really helpful, particularly when you get to some of the more sophisticated uh, protocols. I mean, it's not just a way that maybe you can help protect yourself from liability, but it, it really starts to become very interesting from the standpoint of if it's an NFT, building an ecosystem around that NFT. What I like about it, Chris, is, that, is the sort of the interactivity of it all and the fact that you know, you're sort of playing around with the idea that in these decentralized systems, the participants aren't just passive, that you do actually have this engagement. I imagine that there may be something to do with that in terms of your disclosure DAOs as well. When I think of DAOs and the law, I, I immediately think of it as a challenge for regulators and lawyers because all of a sudden there's a leaderless organization. How do I regulate that? How do I go after whomever's in charge? But I, I gather you're talking about it, flipping it around and saying, how can we actually be constructive with these new governance models in terms of making that disclosure process more beneficial to the collective participation? I just want to make sure I really understand what you'd said before about the gamification of this, right? Because it can kind of go two ways. So one is you have to kind of prove as an investor that you have understood what the thing is. So there's a way of kind of credentialing yourself to say, I've been through this process. I've learned about, you know, this and that aspect of this particular project. I understand it. Therefore, I have a baseline knowledge that the SEC or, you know, whomever, watchdogs, whomever would deem sufficient to you know be able to go forward and make this decision knowledgeably right so that's kind of one way another way though and this is where i was getting a little I want to make sure i understand is that you could have the other side have to go through some different checkpoints or gating right to kind of indicate that they had done certain things and then have essentially credentialing on the project side to indicate that they had been through these different kinds of gating functions to provide the information and make it available and that it was comprehensible and that it was sufficiently distributed and all that kind of thing. And so it, it sounds like you're talking about both. And so I imagine that feeds into this concept of a community and a DAO where presumably you'd have both sides of the of world, right? The investor side, but also the kind of creators. Okay. So let's then get into that. Now, now I'm making, I wanted to make sure I really understood that. Before we kind of went to that. <laughs> no, I'm trying to kind of um, think really creatively about a series of problems because, you know, very often, even, you know, we lawyers, I know shocker can be a little bit siloed in terms of how we think about problems. The interesting thing, and the reason why I think a lot of lawyers are attracted to the space is because there's a lot of legal engineering and it interacts with, with the coding and the different kinds of opportunities. And so securities law is important, but there are other kinds of laws that are important as well. A lot of people think that if it's, if securities law doesn't apply, you know, you're free and clear, right? You know, but there's consumer protection rules, you know, there's common law fraud issues. There are all kinds of things. You know, what I'm trying to do in the system is, as you said, and even with, with the DAO, is how do you leverage different kinds of communities and engagement processes in a way to both get past this, you know, let's call it the substantive challenge of analog rules that aren't really working for the investors in the, who are in the space, just because you know, they're either over or under-inclusive or, or both often, right? So they're not asking the questions that they need to ask, and then they're asking questions that aren't really relevant, right? So how can you make sure that you can even think through what are the substantive questions, right? How can you crowdsource different kinds of ideas and to map them on and integrate them into a system um, uh, uh, that the people who are actually building out the ecosystem uh, can be excited about? right? And, and to actually be engaged in. And I, and I think that a lot of these problems are very interdisciplinary, like a bunch of lawyers aren't going to come up with 
solutions by themselves, even substantively, like even when you're talking about what should be disclosed, they have to talk to engineers, they're going to have to talk to founders, they're going to have to talk to investors, as well as consumer protection advocates to figure out exactly, you know, what are the kinds of things that can be and should be efficiently shared with uh, end users and others in order to navigate these systems. And a DAO seems like a pretty good candidate, again, to start that journey, right? Because you can imagine organizational efforts being taken off on and off chain. Um, but there's a practical value of integrating and leveraging and aligning interests, you know, among the developers, investors, and end users, and, and creating a crypto native platform where you can create a, a nonprofit DAO if you wanted to, where in, in essence, different kinds of individuals could uh, submit disclosures and winning disclosures uh, could create a, a number of rewards for those individuals. Um, you know, I like DAOs because they don't cure and magically make possible coordination, but they can help facilitate it. Uh, unlike other kinds of off-chain bodies, there's a lot more transparency. Obviously, different kinds of processes can be automated, and that can save you um, a good degree of, of operational costs. But also, if you're already operating in a DAO, it means that you probably have some clue about how the space works. I mean, that, that in and of itself is its own kind of qualification or, or credentialing threshold because you can actually even access and, and operate on, on a DAO because you have people who, who, who may not necessarily know. And I think it's useful for lawyers to be at least familiar with the, the technology um, that they're talking about, especially if they're going to write the regulatory rules. And I, and I mean that from the standpoint of both writing rules that fit and that work, but also from the standpoint of actually accomplishing the goals that the regulation wants to uh, achieve and its particular mandate. So I think DAOs, again, along with NFTs, are inherently really smart starting points for that journey. Unfortunately, we have to wrap this up pretty quickly here, but give me a take on what you see as the likelihood for these sorts of ideas being adopted. There's a lot of activity right now in Washington in fact, all around the world in trying to establish new frameworks for crypto regulation. And a lot is very contentious. And there's people of varying degrees of understanding about what this is all about, weighing in with their expertise or supposed expertise on this. It's a bit of a mess. And here you are proposing something quite radical, right? I mean, how receptive are lawmakers, policymakers, regulators to these kinds of ideas? So I, I have to say, it's only been maybe a week and a half since I sort of dropped this uh, particular white paper. And I've been amazed, you know, maybe it's because you're saying disclosure in front of the word NFTs, like, oh, wow, uh, disclosure now? Disclosure <laughs> NFT? You know, that's, that's kind of weird. I've heard from staffers, from members of Congress. I've heard from the SEC. I've heard from, the, from FinCEN. I've heard from all kinds of people who are really intrigued by this. Because really what I'm trying to get at is to tell people, look, the technology stack, even for our regulators, is, is kind of analog. And do you want to have a technology you know, stack that keeps up with the technology or not? And it's interesting because to the extent to which you can find and leverage in a constructive way these kinds of tools that are based off of community and that open up the prospect of community, I think it introduces much more durability, flexibility and responsiveness to the rulemaking process. And it gives regulators as well as founders, you know, additional kinds of tools in terms of on the founder side, differentiating their apps and protocols from others and from the regulators really thinking hard about what are they asking in the first place? And, and are there ways to leverage this kind of ingenuity 
are there ways to make people excited, you know, to draw in an entirely new generation of engineers and others into this project of thinking about what a productive innovation space looks like? One last thing on this. Some of the ideas are already very much being explored, but they're not necessarily being explored in securities law land. They're being explored in, say, AML KYC world, right? Where you're thinking about this issue of how do I whitelist people for participation for KYC and AML purposes in DeFi? And what I like about that work, and I took inspiration from, was to say, you know, securities law has its own kind of whitelisting, right? Where you say to yourself, you, you can only buy something you know, after you've received or certain kinds of information has been delivered. If you're an accredited investor, you know, you have to be whitelisted to say you earn enough money or you have enough wealth in order to participate in certain kinds of projects. This gets at that whitelisting function and also opens up the space and creates new ways to create sophistication um, in a world where, frankly, even the wealth standards and income standards kind of have a little bit of a disparate impact in terms of rural communities, communities of color and, and others. So I'm thinking big, you know, like how do we think about this technology as a technology stack? And what does this mean for 1930s concepts? This is so interesting. And I love the connection that you're drawing there, because I do think so many of these things are when we think about community creation, programmability, the idea is we do need to be looking across to different areas of law and regulation and what's happening in different places. How do we leverage this technology and this innovation to support, again, the fundamental policy goals that really do date back to the 1930s and aren't necessarily unchanged today, but the ways that we go about thinking about what we can do in this space are and should be, I think you've made the case very elegantly, very different. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us for this really interesting conversation that's helping us. More and more creative ways are, are coming up, right, about how we can kind of leverage the benefits of the technology to address some of the challenges, which I think is really the hallmark of a mature industry, at least in my view. So thank you, Chris Brummer, our guest today for joining us. As always, thanks to my host, Michael Casey, my co-host. And thanks to all of you, our listeners and viewers. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do. And stay tuned next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Christopher Brummer. Today's show was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam e. Levine. Have any questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.